WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. A massive casino could be coming to a local county in need of economic investment. Right now, state lawmakers are working with leaders in Anson County to bring new gambling machines to Charlotte's backyard. It's a competitive push by North Carolina as it competes with its northern neighbor, Virginia, who's already working to build new casinos across the state. But the news came as a bit of a surprise to many. Joining us now, Anson County Manager Lynn Sossaman. Manager Sossaman, thanks for coming on Flashpoint. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Sure. Uh, let's set, set this up for us. How did this proposal of uh, the idea of a, of a casino there in, in Anson County, how did this come to be? It's my understanding that it came to be because it's a General Assembly-led initiative, uh, sort of kind of like self-defense, if you will. Uh, you probably are aware that the state of Virginia approved casino gambling a few years ago, and they are in the process now of building a string of casinos starting out at Chesapeake Bay and moving westward about every 75 to 100 miles all the way to the Tennessee line at Bristol, Virginia, Bristol, Tennessee. So it's my understanding that they probably did it, or I should say understanding, probably my opinion that uh, they were doing that because they know you got a lot of people in North Carolina. North Carolina doesn't have casino gambling, so why not build them along the state line and be able to be able to have Virginians go as well as North Carolinians go. And uh, I've been told a couple of times by folks that have gone up to Danville where they have a 40-some thousand square foot tent that serves as a, as a uh, I guess a temporary casino while while the brick and mortar ones being built that uh, you know, anywhere from two thirds to three fourths of the cars have North Carolina tags. So this is kind of a self defense measure. Gotcha. Ha has have you or your office been involved in in any of these talks so far? Uh, yes, we sure have. We have we had uh, uh, several senators and House members uh, contact us about it and uh, discuss it and. Uh, and, and also, the, I don't know if I haven't seen the final the language that's going to be in the bill, but it's uh, uh, been, been reported to us that, that it will require a half a billion dollar, $500 million investment, and it would create at least 1,750 jobs. In your mind, what makes Anson County's situation and geography, what makes it ideal there? Well, a lot of people, it's interesting to ask that question. A lot of people say that Anson County is in the middle of nowhere. And in my opinion is if we get a $500 million hotel casino development uh, with restaurants and those types of things, that it's going to put us in the middle of everywhere. From a geographic standpoint, uh, it's, it's close to Charlotte, you know, about 40 miles. Uh, I know that the Cornish company that operates live casinos, L-I-V-E, uh, at different points around the country, like up in up in Maryland, uh, their casino there is probably 20 miles plus or minus uh, west of Baltimore, and so this would make the uh, same type of geographic sense, being about 40 minutes from where it would probably go on the west side of of Anson County, next to the Union County line. So from that point to downtown Charlotte, it's going to probably be about 40 minutes. So it would take the, the greatest advantage of a, of a population base, both from Charlotte, uh, the Charlotte metro area, as well as just, uh, about an hour and a half down to Columbia or over to Florence, South Carolina. I've spent some time in Anson County, so, so I know, but, but you know firsthand, uh, your county has struggled economically over the years. Um, what would something like this mean 
to the, the families and people that make up uh, Anson County? It would be an economic uh, shot in the arm from a tax base standpoint. It would add 500 million in, in round figures to the tax base. That could that could equate to current tax rate could equate to somewhere around four million dollars a year in new, in new tax revenue, property tax revenue, I should say. Also, there's sales tax revenue as as well as the uh, tourist and development authority, the head and bed tax, as I like to call it. So right now, Anson County does not have a bona fide hotel. We got several motels, but but this would be the first uh, uh, first hotel, if you will. And I know the one up in up in Maryland that, that's operated by the Cordes Company. It has a number of restaurants in it. They all it also has a uh, eighty some thousand square foot convention center inside. You can you can you can enter a lot of those restaurants without ever going into a casino. So from an economic standpoint, it could in the first couple of years create another eight to ten million dollars worth of, uh, of worth of different revenues uh, stream to the county. I think you're underselling it by saying shot in the arm. I, I think it could be like transformative, uh, probably there as well. Um, a similar plan is is being talked about up in Rockingham County, uh, and already receiving some pushback. This week at a meeting, dozens of folks there spoke out against the idea. Are you worried about pushback there in, in your own backyard? Uh, there has been some. There's been a few folks, uh, ministers, if you will, and a few other folks that have indicated uh, their disapproval of it, if you will. Uh, but then there's also been folks on the other side who understand that uh, it would be, uh, to use your word, transformative. It would, uh, and I know I said a shot in the arm, it would be a, a a heck of a boost, and what's the old saying? Got a, a rising tide. With a rising tide, all boats rise. Or something to that effect. Yeah. And so, jobs, uh, you know, good-paying jobs. I believe a lot of the folks that work in the casino up in the up in, in Maryland make somewhere around fifty thousand plus a year. And so, that would be great for us to have those that type of opportunity. You know, at one time, Anson County was a thriving county. Had a lot of uh, factories, if you will. Now, there's still a few, but not as many as there used to be. Uh, do you have any concerns? I mean, it sounds like you're generally broadly supportive uh, of this, but are there concerns that you have, things that you need to see happen before this becomes a reality? Well, uh, for me, taking the initiative to, to, uh, to boost our water and sewer output, right now, Anson County uh, draws its water from the PD River, which is a, which is a really good source. And so I've uh, been working for the last six months since we started hearing the rumors about this to make sure that from a water and sewer delivery perspective that we're ready. Uh, and and I, I would think it would go on uh, US 74, which is a link between the mountains and Wilmington. There's a lot of folks that come through, probably 40 some thousand a day on, on, uh, on US 74. Uh, they don't stop. So, you know, we'd like to have them stop, spend some time, spend some money in Aspen County. The casino will give them that opportunity. Uh, in, in your mind, do you feel like this is something that should be put before voters in any way in, in the form of a referendum? I have heard that that's, a, that's, a, that's a, an option that uh, the commissioners uh, could have. And I believe uh, Nash County, I think their commissioners have said they're going to have a referendum. I, my commission hasn't really decided on it yet because obviously until, it, until it, the law passes in Raleigh, it's, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just a rumor, so to speak. Have you been given any sort of clear timeline of how this thing might unfold? 
Uh, I know the budget hasn't been adopted, uh, and and I would I would think that once the budget's adopted and the language in the uh, casino, I think they're rec calling it a, a recreational district or tourism district. Once that's passed, and we'll, we'll know what we can do from a zoning perspective, and also uh, it'll give us a clear timeline. Uh, just making some inquiries, I believe the casino and hotel could probably, once uh, lands acquired, permits are given, they could probably be operational within two and a half to three years. Gotcha. H have you been told or promised that this will be included in the budget? Uh, not promised. I don't, uh, the, word, the word I have is that it will be. But, uh, you know, uh, until it's over, it's not over, as Yogi Bear used to say. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> Got to manage your expectations there. Well, listen, I know uh, this could be a controversial topic, but I also know uh, how big and how transformative this could be for the folks there uh, in Anson County and Wadesboro as well. All right. County Manager Lynn Sossman. County Manager, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Still to come on Flashpoint, school for thousands of students now just around the corner. Ahead, the hidden cybersecurity threat that's targeting teachers, students, and parents. This week, several school districts in South Carolina set to return to the classroom, but as we advance into an age of artificial intelligence, there's concern about technology's hidden danger. A report out this year reports nearly one in three K-12 schools were victim of cybersecurity incidents. And a lot of these districts don't have a plan in place. Joining us now is Doug Levin. He is one of the nation's leading experts on cybersecurity, specifically in schools. He serves as the co-founder and national director of the K-12 Security Information Exchange. Welcome to Flashpoint, Doug. We appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for shining a light on this important topic. It is an important topic and something that's top of mind as people head back to class. Uh, give us an idea. What makes school districts specifically um, such an easy target for some of these cyber attacks? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a great question. I think it's something that surprises school district leaders when they find themselves on the wrong end of one of these sorts of incidents. Uh, but I think one of the things that I think uh, many people don't understand is that how much schools rely on technology today. Uh, they use it not just in the classroom, but to manage all their employees, their facilities, food service, transportation, even their physical security systems. So the first thing to understand is they're at risk. They use a lot of technology and they rely on that technology. The second thing is gonna be no surprise, and that is that school districts uh, are challenged with resources. Uh, they don't always have enough money to put in place the, in, the protections they need to put in place or to have on staff cybersecurity expertise to protect them. And then I think the third reason that schools are particularly vulnerable is that uh, cyber criminals have found that um, they are, quote unquote, soft targets. Um, while they may not be the first place that people think of as having a lot of money that may be of interest to cyber criminals, they have plenty, they have enough, and they also have a lot of valuable data. Uh, but they do not have the resources and have not had, uh, frankly, the requirements to put in place security protections like other sorts of institutions that we can think of, like banks or credit card companies, uh, or even uh, hospitals and health systems are required to put in place. And so that combination of having a lot of technology, not enough resources to support it, uh, and then uh, being uh, relatively soft targets has really led to sort of a perfect storm facing school districts all across the country. And you touched on it there, but, but I mean, why school districts? They don't have the money that some other places do, and, and they, they do have some of the data information, but, but 
what makes them sort of a, a target-rich sort of target? Yeah, so I think that is correct. People don't think of schools as wealthy institutions, and that's definitely the case. Uh, they don't have enough money to do all the things that they need and want to do for their students and for their teachers. Uh, and I think that's something that you know we are all well aware of. But frankly, cyber criminals, from the cyber criminal perspective, they still have more than enough money. Uh, frankly, even a relatively uh, smaller school district might have a budget in the tens of millions of dollars, even hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of the largest school districts in the nation actually have annual budgets uh, over a billion dollars, uh, believe it or not. So these are large organizations. Um, and frankly, if a cyber criminal can get a few hundred thousand dollars or uh, a few million dollars, uh, from scamming a school district or attacking with ransomware, that's more than enough money to capture their attention. So uh, in a way, they make it up on volume uh, versus uh, the sort of the size of the attack. Uh, but unfortunately, we have seen in recent years that cyber criminals have been targeting the sector specifically, doing research on school districts, knowing full well that they are attacking, uh, you know, institutions that are serving in the public good, uh, and they seem to be just okay uh, with that. I mean, there is no honor among thieves. And, and what's at stake here? Well, what's at stake is uh, the personal information of both students. Uh, and employees, including teachers. Um, that that identity information has been used um, to conduct uh, credit fraud, tax fraud, identity theft, not only of employees, but of students as young as first grade, resulting directly from school district cyber attacks. Um, they're also uh, scam school districts out of uh, millions of dollars or may cause damages that require millions of dollars of new investments. And those are investments that then don't go into the classroom, right? They don't directly benefit uh, the student. Um, and then finally, they have actually also led to school closures, right? So students are not able to go to class. Parents have to make uh, alternate arrangements for their students. Those students who rely on school meals or other sorts of extracurriculars or services services are unable to access them. So they have very direct impact on uh, the school community members themselves. Uh, I saw on your website, you have listed several incidents that happened here at CMS and several other uh, districts around the Charlotte area. How can school districts better prepare themselves? I think writ large school districts um, have understood how to put in place emergency operations plans for a variety of contingencies, for things like extreme weather, right? A snowstorm or a hurricane or a tornado, right? Um, they understand uh, that these things may happen. They may have an impact on their operations and the people and the safety of those people. Um, they put budget uh, towards it. Uh, they plan for it. Right, and um, this is something, this is just a part of normal operating procedure. Uh, unfortunately, today they will do this as well for physical security incidents on school campuses. Uh, concerned, you know, those schools concerned about, say, school shootings, for instance, which is a very unfortunate reality. Uh, but they also need to take uh, into consideration the possibility of a cyber attack and plan for that just as seriously. So there's a variety of advice um, that's available to organizations of all types to shore up the cybersecurity defenses of organizations. Uh, and in many cases, school districts are really not held to any standard here, uh, either by the state or the federal government. Um, and as such, the practices are widely varied. And so this is a case where I think we really do need 
school district leaders, superintendents, school board members to ask the hard questions and put in place those contingency plans uh, for these risks that they're taking on by relying on all of this technology that's connected to the internet. Uh, what, what about if you're, if you're a parent or if you're a teacher on the individual level? Is there anything you can do to protect yourself or your, or your student or your, or your child there in the classroom? Yeah, at the individual level, so it's important to understand what the policies uh, are in your you know, institution, of course, but there are uh, many ways that individuals lead to these sorts of compromises. Um, the first is by reusing passwords across services. So if you have a, a, obviously you'll have a password for your school accounts. If you reuse that password uh, for your personal email, for social networking, for your bank, it, it uh, radically increases the odds of you becoming the vector for a cyber attack. Uh, and that's because uh, we get these data breach notices all the time. And if you use the same password across services, um, all your information is, as long as it's exposed once, then all of your accounts are at risk, including potentially your school accounts. Um, particularly for teachers in, uh, and actually parents as well, uh, they are targeted by scammers sending uh, uh, phishing emails, uh, malicious emails designed to trick you into sharing personal information, uh, to sharing account information, um, uh, and parting you with your money. So it's always important to be skeptical about those emails, to double check uh, where they're being sent from. Uh, and odds are, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And always pick up the phone, pick up the phone, um, contact the school district directly, contact that vendor directly, make sure to verify that offer uh, because um, it's important not to, you know, to keep your guard up, particularly in the back to school time. Doug Levin, some really uh, valuable information as folks head back to school. Doug, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure.